You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. All right, pick up your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't own a Bible, um, our model here is we want you to own one, so take the one in the seat in front of you as our gift to you. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 15 in a minute. In the last few weeks, we've really seen David on a roller coaster ride. Uh, We've seen him at the top of his game, uh, pouring out God's loving kindness to Jonathan's son, uh, just acting like the greatest king ever. Uh, Then we've seen him plummet last week into the depths um, of the most evil and vile kinds of sin that a person can do. He managed to break five of the Ten Commandments within a matter of a couple of weeks. The man of God, we could say, has fallen, and he's now on the same plane as Saul was, the king before him who had fallen so greatly. And one might think, oh, well, this is the man after God's own heart, so maybe God will just overlook it, right? Because we t- often, if, if somebody is really high up or a celebrity or, or somebody that bats for our team, we're like, well, I'll just overlook that because they're on my side. But we would be mistaken because as Romans 2 verse 11 reminds us, for God, for there is no favoritism with God. He treats us all the same. Sin is sin, and he will hold us accountable. And So the scene might look to us rather similar. There was 40 plus years ago a scene that played out with a prophet named Samuel, and that prophet named Samuel went to a king whose name was Saul, because Saul had turned away from the Lord, and he confronted Saul, and the question is, will things end the same way? That's what we're going to see, so let's pick it up. Verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men of a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she she grew up with him and his children. From this meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man man deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs this lamb. Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul, and I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave your house, the house of Israel and Judah to you, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what is I consider evil? 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you and your family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, And the Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. However, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Well, God, we come to you to read about a tragic, tragic event that we will see play out in this man's life for the rest of his life. Uh, this is not something that any of us are beyond, Lord. And none of us are beyond getting into the sort of place that David is in. But Lord, I pray today that we would open our hearts and see where are we in this story. Are we someone who is still in our sin, as David is at this time? Are we someone who has uh, repented of our sin and received the forgiveness that you're going to offer to David? Where are we, Lord, in this picture? I pray, too, also we would see Nathan and and the example that Nathan sets for us in his confrontation of David. Help us, Lord, help me, a simple man, to talk about this event that took place and how you responded to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So some time has passed, uh, quite a bit of time has passed uh, since the dirty deed that David did. Upwards of a year, maybe some even say uh, two years. Bathsheba and him are married. The baby has been born. And those looking on uh, uh, might say that uh, David seems to have gotten away with it. Many people would have known what had gone on. Uh, Bathsheba was a couple of months pregnant when they got married, uh, when Uriah died, and he brought her in to his house after a month. It wouldn't have been hard for the mighty men to pick it up. It wouldn't have been hard uh, for the people who were around during the events to pick up what was going on. Probably Uriah's family knew what was going on. It was probably evident and yet, nobody was confronting him. And it seemed like he was above the law. But we don't know what was happening, or we do know, because David tells us what was happening in that year span when it seemed like he was getting away with it. Psalm 32 was written by David. It, it's about the events that were taking place during that time. He later tells us, lets us in on what was going on in his life. Verses 1 to 4, he says, How joyful it is to the one whose transgression is forgiven, for whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person whom he, the Lord, does not charge with iniquity, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from, the groaning, from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained like one in the summer's heat. David acknowledges to us uh, what some of us know, that the weight of sin is heavy. The things that we do in the secret, the things that people don't know about, 
they weigh on us. If we still have a conscience, if, if our heart has not hardened, they weigh on us. They're there when we go to sleep. They play out in our minds. We worry about getting caught, so we spend more lies to cover it, which leads to more conviction. We have to understand that the weight, the conviction that David talks about, the hand of the Lord is a good thing. It's a gift. If it wasn't there, we would be worried. When I came to Christ, any of you know my story, I lived a pretty wicked life. And at 27, I all of a sudden, like my conscience came alive when the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. And I started to feel the conviction of things that I had never felt the conviction of before. One example is, I've, some of you have heard this before, that I used to work at a game store for a couple of years when I was a teenager. And I would steal from the owner of that store, take things. Never got caught, never had any suspicion. And he was a, a good man. And I never felt bad for it until I became one of Christ, until I was forgiven. And then the conviction of the Holy Spirit weighed on me. I realized that, ah, oh, I've taken advantage of this man and I've never rectified it. I've never come out. And sure, I could have gotten away with it because nobody knew about it. But it just weighed on me for a good six or seven months. So I tracked down where he was. He no longer had the store and no longer lived in this province. I tracked down where he was and I sent him a letter uh, confessing what I had done and asking for his forgiveness and telling him what had happened to me. And along with the letter was a check for $5,000, what I thought um, with interest would have been what he deserved. Of course, I knew that he could call the police on me. But I wanted as a follower of Christ to, to the very best that I could do, make amends for what I had done. And I no longer had that weight no longer had to worry about God bringing it out someday. There was no longer a need to lie. Some of you know that, and some of you have looked to rectify the wrongs you have done, and that's what God desires for us to do when we become his followers. And up to this point, it seems like David has not hardened his heart. Some people, when they get into sin, even if they were once had tender hearts, they, instead of allowing the conviction to weigh on them, they go hard. Uh, they get into more sin. They, they numb their sin with more, and they just become hardened, and eventually they walk away from God, walk away from the church. That was Saul. Some people feel guilty for things they've never done or things they shouldn't feel guilty for, things that have maybe already been forgiven or things that other people tell them they should feel guilty for. Christian uh, psychiatrist Paul Turner writes this in his book, Guilt and Grace. He says, there is a false guilt brought on by the judgments and suggestions of man. But true guilt only comes from willingly and knowingly disobeying God. Sometimes we feel guilty for things we shouldn't. Sometimes it's because people, uh, when they want to feel good about themselves or they want to forget about how sinful they are, will make you feel like you're the one who's bad. You've got to watch for that. Some things, sometimes Satan will make us feel bad for things that we've already been forgiven for. And we'll just live in that perpetual uh, place of feeling bad and guilty about our sin. We need to allow that to go. But David is feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is good guilt. Because let's remember in chapter 11, the last two verses in chapter 11, before we read chapter 12. I'll read it for you. Verse 27. When the time of mourning ended, David 
said to her, David brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what God had done, what David had done as evil. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan didn't come on his own, notice. He was sent, sent by God. God's timing is perfect. We don't always think it's perfect. But guilt had to do its work on David. Maybe six months earlier, David wouldn't have been ready. If he had hardened himself like Saul had, forget about it. He wouldn't have received it. The timing was perfect. And it's hard for us to wait on God's timing if we're honest. We want justice now. We want it according to our standards. But God had the right time. And it's often a tragedy for me, for other people, for Christians, for you, to see people that once followed the Lord harden their hearts and become blind to anything that is their fault. Everything is someone else's fault. They harden themselves. Some people create a prison for themselves. They retreat inside of that prison. They lock the door from the inside out. They tuck the key away, and they say to themselves, I'm safe in here. Nobody can convict me. No one will see who I am. When it's evident to almost everyone in their life that they are the problem. That wasn't David. So God sends Nathan, the perfect man, to confront him. And David is an intimidating man to confront. And if we're honest, uh, sometimes people like David, who is gifted, he's a gifted man, he's gifted at uh, poetry, he's a gifted spiritual leader, he's a gifted warrior. Gifted people are intimidating to confront because gifted people can spin things like a lawyer to make anything sound good, right? Have you ever met anyone like this? They're intimidating because you can come to them that's something pretty blatantly sinful, and somehow you'll walk away and they're like, how did they spin that? It looks like I'm the bad person and they're the good person, right? And that could have been David. He was a gifted man. He's also a passionate man. And passionate people, emotional people, are very hard to confront sometimes. You come to them and they're, how dare you? Do you know what I've been through? How dare you accuse me of this? You don't know what my parents did. You don't know my life. Okay, okay. Emotional people, gifted people are intimidating. But he's thought about this. He, he's been told by God at some point, go to David. God has told David exactly what's happened. I don't think he did it. This is my opinion. He went right away. He probably thought about it for a bit of time, prayed about it. How can I go towards the king? This is the king. He could chop my head off at any point. No one would probably stop him or hold him responsible. So he doesn't go with some, uh, you know, his own insights. He goes with the word of God, but he thinks about it. He prays about it, and then he allows the word of God to do what the word of God is supposed to do. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us what the word of God is to do. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If somebody is sick sometimes, um, the doctors will open them up surgically with a scalpel to ex see exactly what is wrong in their bodies, right? And the word of God is able to penetrate where people can't even see, where we can't even see, 
and tell us what is wrong with us. And so Nathan doesn't need to think of what to say. He needs to think about how to go about it. And then he's going to allow God's word to do what God's word can do. He's a prophet. And a prophet's job is to simply speak the truth and the words of God. And this is why we, all of us as Christians, need to be in a church where the Bible is preached. Where it's not my opinion or what culture says, or I'm not entertaining you, where I'm just teaching you, or you're being taught what God has said. Because what God has said is enough. And if we just explain it, I, my job is to study it and to explain it to you in the simplest way so you can apply it to your lives. That is enough. And that's why you need to be at a church where you're being taught that. Because it's a dangerous place if you're at a church where the pastor just tells you his opinion. Or he's just there to entertain you. Or tell you what you want to hear. Uh, God warned Ezekiel not to do this. And Ezekiel was another prophet. In Ezekiel chapter 33, picking up at verse 7, God says to this. He warns Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give the warning to them from me. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about what his way, that wicked person will die from his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the wicked person and turn away, and he turns away from his sin, or sorry, and he does not turn away from his sin, he will still die, but you will not be held responsible. So God will hold me responsible. That's a... If every pastor understood that, I bet you there'd be a lot of different things being said at churches all over Canada today. They're going to be held accountable. If they just told the people what they wanted to hear and not what God has said. But my responsibility stops there. That's hard. I wish I could force some people to change. I wish I could force some people to take God's word and apply it to their life. But God says, it's not my responsibility. It's yours. You'll be held accountable for what you heard and for what you've done with it. He goes on in that same chapter to say to Ezekiel in verse 30, As for you, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of the houses. One person speaks to another, saying to his brother, Come and hear the message that comes from the Lord. So my people come to you in crowds and sit in front of you and hear your words, but they do not obey them. Their mouths go on passionately and their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you are like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on the instrument. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. Yet when all this comes true, and it definitely will, they will know that a prophet has been Pastor Mark and I and uh, the elders were just simple men. We really don't have anything unique to offer you except what we get from God's word. And we will try, as long as we're here, to just give that to you in the simplest form we can. And if there's a time when I'm no longer here and Pastor Mark's no longer here and you have to hire a new pastor, the number one thing you should be looking for is someone who will preach to you God's word in the simplest, most life-applicable way that he can. That should be your number one thing. So Nathan, I'm sure, is intimidated. He's got to be intimidated. He's coming forward before the most respected and most powerful man in 
Israel's history up to that point. But notice a few things about how he goes about it. He does it face to face. Not by email, not by text, not someone else, hey, go tell so-and-so that I saw this in their life. No, he has courage. And he goes before David and confronts him himself. And that's hard to do. Second, he does it privately. Doesn't do it in front of everyone, which is what Jesus tells us to do and Paul tells us to do. Go to a brother or a sister privately and confront them in their sin. Number three, he does it with tact. He's really skilled at the way he goes about it. He doesn't just throw Bible verses at the person. He doesn't just say, hey, scumbag, I saw what you did. Joyce Baldwin uh, writer, Christian writer, says this, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword. I remember when I was getting trained um, in um, unarmed combat in the military, and a, a specialist came in to teach us uh, this, and I had a pistol demonstrating, and uh, I was the dummy, and demonstrating uh, in front of him holding the pistol to his head and he's speaking and all of a sudden it was up in my throat and there was nothing I could do about it. I was like Nathan. David thinks he's in control of the situation but Nathan is going to show him he's not. And so he brings this story whether it actually happened and Nathan is bringing a story that went on in the kingdom or it's just a parable we don't know but it's a king's job in those days to also sit as judge um, over big issues so when justice is not being done or brought forward the king of Israel is to be the one who brings the justice the judge so he says uh, there were two men in a certain city one rich and one poor the rich man had very large flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing except a small ewe lamb that he had bought he raised her and she grew up with him and his children from his meager food she would eat from his cup she would drink from his arms she would sleep she was like a daughter to him There's some clues being thrown out to here some hints being sent to David does this sound familiar to us eat, drink, sleep. We were here last week. You read chapter 11. You remember an altercation when David and Uriah and David's like, just go back and sleep with your wife, trying everything he can to get out of what he, uh, what he knows he's done. And Uriah answers him in chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, it said, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camped out in a field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife. Nathan is throwing some hints at him, but he's not picking it up. He's become blind to his own sin. Isn't this true? We can often so easily pick out other people's sins, but be very blind to our own sins. Verse 5, David becomes infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for this lamb. Another interesting thing is, remember last week we looked at chapter 11 and those couple of months that have gone by and Dave doesn't even mention God. It's like God doesn't even live in his life at that time. But all of a sudden, David is now a holy man as the Lord lives. Well, we haven't even heard you following the Lord up until now, David. Interesting. So he spews out his Bible verse of the day. You know, us Christians, we can be really good 
at uh, ignoring our own sins, but throwing out well-placed Bible verses to make other people feel guilty and to build ourselves up. He doesn't get the connection. This is you, David. This is your sin, David. And I've seen so many people, unfortunately, tragically, when someone approaches them with something out of love, it's not just thrown at them uh, to make themselves feel good. It's not just nitpicking little bits of their life, but there's something significant going on in another Christian's life, and that is brought to that person. And that person is so blind, and they've already got their reason and their justification saw you treat your wife that way. You know the way my wife treats me? That's why I do it. Brother, it really can't uh, treat her that way. You don't know the way she is. Hey, I see your life is out of control and you, you seem to be having, have an addiction. Something has a real hole in you. You know what my mother did to me or my father did to me? That's why I live this way. God knows and he's okay. We have our excuses. We have our reasons. We justify them in our heads. It's one of the hard things of seven years of pastoral counseling. It's to, it's to see, and it's a lesson I'm learning better, is when a person's default mechanism is to blame others, when they've always got a reason, a justification as, as to why their sin is acceptable. I've, I'm learning that there really isn't much I can do for that person. They're stuck. Until God opens their eyes, ignites their heart, they're going to be stuck. So Nathan sets the trap, David steps in it, and God's word goes to work. And Nathan replied to David, you are the man. And this is the truth for all of us. We are the man. We are the woman. We are guilty. We are David. The cross of Christ says we are. God so sent his son to this world to die, not just for David, but for everyone's sins. You may say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never slept with anyone's wife, at least not outright. Maybe in my head I did. Jesus said when he was here in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, he's talking about the Old Testament laws, you've heard it said, you shall not commit uh, murder and you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever uh, hates a person uh, or insults a person, a brother, has already committed murder in his mind. And whoever lusts after another person, and lust isn't just physically, lust can be, all oh, that man, he's so good to his family, I wish that man was mine. Whoever lusts after another person has committed Adultery in their heart. So we all are in the same boat, we could say. We all are the man or the woman. Nathan continues. This says what God exactly says he should say. This is what the Lord of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why have you despised the Lord's command by doing what is I consider to be evil? God reminds him what he's done for him. And you know, we're so easily often 
telling the Lord what he hasn't done for us, that it's really good for us to stop and reflect on what the Lord has done for us. We've all got challenges in our lives, some more than others, but I guarantee you, you can find many good things that God has done for you. And if you're stuck in that place where everything is miserable and everybody owes you something and God hasn't come through for you lately, oh, you're in a pretty lost place. You're never going to be able to experience the grace of God until you realize what he's already done for you. That he's already given himself to forgive you of the sins that you've done, even the stuff that nobody else has done. You'll never really appreciate that. You'll never be able to embrace the cross until you realize just how far you have fallen as a human being. And what he's done for you just in the little graces of every day. So he reminds him what he's done and he asks him the question. God asks him a question. Why? 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 A lot of the problems of the world, most of the problems of the world can be summed up by us simply, humanity simply, ignoring or rejecting God's word. Look at your own life. Look at the world's problems. Look at this nation's problems. Look at this community's problems and examine your life. Most of the problems of your life are caused by you ignoring the word of God or somebody else. If we were all a people who said, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to, with everything I have, every fiber of my being, devote myself to loving God and loving other people as myself, if we really did this, the world would be a very different place, wouldn't it? But we don't. We justify, and the person beside us justifies, and the person across the way justifies, and we have the mess that we're in, and we say, God, where are you? And how could you let this happen? But David isn't going to come up with an excuse. He did before. In chapter 11, verse 25, he justifies for himself. He sent a message to Job, and he says, um, after they've committed this murder together, yeah, he sends a messenger to Joab, and he says, don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. That's nah, just a small thing, Joab. Really not a big deal. God understands it. You're the general. I'm the king. We get it. But God wasn't getting it. No one is above the law. Not pastors, not presidents, not elders, not prime ministers, not children's ministry workers, not any of you and not me. Nobody should be unapproachable. And yeah, some people seem like they're above the law, but someday they will be held accountable. Nobody in this place should be unapproachable. We've seen too much in the last couple of years. A celebrity pastor, some of you loved their stuff. I love some of their stuff. Who seem to have the secret life on the side where for 10 or 12 or 20 years they justify to themselves I deserve this, and God's good with this. Listening to the, the, one of the victims of the, one of the pastors who had the affair with the person, uh, she says that he said to me, I know this is wrong what we're doing, but God is allowing us to do it. Well, he was for a while, but now it's all out in the open because God will bring everything out into the open. So there are consequences. You struck John Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as to be your own wife. There's always consequences, always. 
Maybe we don't see them, but other people feel them. Some of you feel those consequences of other people's sin. And God often seems extreme to us. I want you to picture yourself in this. He often sees, seems extreme to us. God is extremely slow to some of us, and we complain about how he's extremely uh, slow in bringing his judgments, and he's extremely too gracious, too forgiving. God, you're not, you're not bringing justice in my time frame, and when you do it, you're too gracious. But then we can flip the other way and say, oh, God, you're way too quick in bringing uh, judgment on me, and it's way too harsh. I don't like it. It's too much. God is extreme to us, but he is perfect. And in that moment, this is the moment of truth for David. What's he going to do? Last ship is sailing of grace. And then he responds with probably the most important six words he will ever utter in his life. I have sinned against the Lord. Notice what he doesn't do. He does the opposite of what King Saul did. He doesn't make excuses, and he doesn't lessen the charge by justifying it. He takes ownership of it. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, he'll later again write about it. When he says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I was conscious of my rebellion and my sin was always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right to pass sentence on me. You are blameless in your judgment. This is humility. And because of this humility, he gets a second chance. And this is the good news of the gospel. That everyone, no matter where they've been, no matter how many times you've messed up, God wants to give second and third and fourth and fifth, five hundred and a millionth chances. All we must do is humble ourselves. If we do not humble ourselves, we cannot receive his grace. But all we do is humble ourselves and he will forgive us. John reminds us of this, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you plagued with sin? Do you have a secret life of sin that no one knows about? Does an addiction have a hold on you? Be sure it's going to come out. For God says in Numbers 32, you have sinned against the Lord, and sure, your sin will find you out. And Jesus said in Luke, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. But to those who will humble themselves, Nathan will remind David. Re immediately, the Lord spoke into Nathan's mind, and he spoke to David, and he says, the Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. This is his second chance. This is his grace. And I can tell you from a man who's gotten way more than a second and third chance, but probably on his 50,000th chance, God is gracious. God is merciful. And essentially God, what God says, and just finishing it up, is God says, there's going to be consequences for this, but I'm not going to bring it up anymore. And that is the way God looks at us. He allows us to reap some of the consequences to remind us, but he says, I'm not going to bring it up again. It's done. It's finished. So what can we take away from this? Number one, be willing like Nathan was. We need men and women who are willing to confront other people on their sin. We need men and women who are bold enough, courageous enough, 
to go to our brother and sister and say, hey, out of love, privately, you're on a bad road. And I need to talk to you about this. I'd put, throw a caveat in there. I'd say, unless that person is the person that you've been involved in sin with, then it's not your job because you're too emotionally attached. Let God be the judge then. We may say, well, God's too slow. God says, let me be the judge. Leave room for me. Second thing, don't become blind to your own sin. Don't be so focused on everyone else's garbage that you can't see your own stuff. Number three, repent before you're confronted. Don't wait until you're caught. It's always best to bring it out on your own. And if somebody brings something to you, Christians, that they have done, they bring it out on your own, offer them that much more grace because obviously God has been working on their heart. And last thing, remember there's always second chances. None of you are beyond redeeming. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite uh, our communion leader come up. God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much that you won't allow us to get away with our sin. Where would I be if you had allowed me to get away with mine? Where would any of us be? We are redeemed sinners. And Lord, I pray if anyone in here has never actually owned their own garbage, they're still blaming things on other people, that they would today own their sin. They would come before you and say, Against you, Lord, and you alone, I have sinned. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.